just me again uh yeah well this wasn't at all uh foreseen uh this week our schedules haven't aligned i've been ill eddie's been working so yeah i'm just gonna knock out one of these i have very scanty notes for this one i don't really have any you know fully formed ideas for a change um but yeah you don't, don't expect the utter rigor that you got out of the last fun off this will probably be a bit more slaloming. But anyway, yeah. So next week, you'll have all three of us again. You'll be ecstatic to hear for the Halloween episode. Um, we call it the Halloween episode. I don't think we're really going to... Um, we're going to talk about one horror-related thing. And that's going to make it the Halloween episode. We've done a Halloween episode. There's no need to do another one, really. So the first thing that I'm going to talk about again is the Donald Trump-Joe Biden debate, the second one. Uh, I'm not counting the town halls. I'm talking about the actual in-person official debate. The first thing that happened was that they, as they were walking onto the stage, Joe Biden kind of made made a show of taking his mask off on stage. And it's sort of like when they cast, if, if they ever cast a black actor to play James Bond. So endemic is the tokenism that I could never fully trust that they cast that actor because he was right for the part. As it goes, I'm not a Bond purist in that way, nor a racial purist, crucially. Uh, I don't have any problem with a black actor playing James Bond. Not a woman, though. Never a woman. Well, like Jane... So I was going to say like Jane Bond, but you could have a female 007 these days and still call her James Bond. Anyway... Uh, So firstly, COVID. Uh, Trump claimed that it was going to be over sooner rather than later, basically. I don't know how accurate he is, obviously, regarding its longevity, that, you know, um, the test of time. But he actually made more sense, I thought, than Biden, which I certainly wasn't expecting. At one point, Biden Biden said, we're not learning to live with it, we're learning to die with it. Uh, so a lot of what I said last time still applies, basically. The, you know, the implicit what I would have done-ness of it. He claimed that no president who presides over the death of uh, 200,000 people should hold office. But then you just think that over 400,000 Americans died in World War Two. Are we saying that the presidents and the prime ministers of the allied countries should have been booted as well? I mean, the... Again, as I said last time, the perfect is the enemy of the good. You can't aim for zero deaths. You can only minimize it. Sometimes there are only bad solutions and you choose the best of the bad. Obviously, if you're someone infected with it or you've had a relative die from it, that's an unconscionable thing to say, but you can't govern like that. In wars, people die. That doesn't mean you don't storm the beaches of Normandy. I'm not saying they're directly equivalent, but the point is that adopting such a a feeble pose is kind of untenable. Uh, This is obviously mainly going to be me slagging off Biden. If you haven't yet determined or derived a sense of my leanings, I'll, I'll repeat for the record. I think Donald 
Trump is a travesty and a tragedy. Uh, if this was 2004, the Democrats would have my support. But 2004 was a very, very long time ago. And uh, I don't think that many people who are going to vote for Trump do so in full glee or admiration. I don't think most people like him that much. It's just that they see the alternative as being far, far worse. And that's definitely where I stand. I do not like Donald Trump. I don't like his general manner. I don't like his prevaricating. I don't like his ego. I don't like his showboating. Uh, You know, I'd probably hate the guy in person. But yeah, so I just want to put that on the record to frame everything that I'm going to say about Biden. Because yes, I have fewer concrete criticisms of Trump in this particular debate. Just to say that that's that's not me saying that Biden did A, B, C, D, E, F, G wrong and Trump did nothing wrong. Trump is Trump. You know, I I don't think he said anything egregious other than maybe... Well, I don't don't even know what he was saying about um, the whole... This catch and release program where apparently immigrants are kind of sent out for a year or so. Then they have to return to determine whether they're going to be citizens or something like that. And he basically implied well, said that the only people who bother to come back for review are the lower intelligent, lower intelligence ones. So other than that, he's just Trump, you know? So anyway, back to Biden. Uh, he he said that healthcare was a right, um, not a privilege. But you can't say that and then go on to talk about affordable healthcare. It's either a right or it's not. A right is something that nobody has to give you. It's just something you have, almost as a state of nature. I mean, I don't think healthcare is a right, but I think it should be very cheap because healthcare has to be given to you by other people. Therefore, it's not a right. Freedom of speech is a right. They were asked about immigration, undocumented children and all that sort of thing. And, you know, Biden made the point that some illegal immigrants are paramedics and firefighters and... And I don't, no one's disputing that. No one is saying that all illegal immigrants are bad people, or even most. I think that a lot of them are good people that America would be proud to, or should be proud to host. But you can't just cross a border illegally and be pardoned for it. Just have it excused. We either have borders or we don't. And we do. And God forbid we ever have a world where we decide to knock them down. I've written down um, Jack Nicholson's famous speech from A Few Good Men. I think it's very applicable. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do an impression. I'm just gonna read it. We live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Deep down, at places you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like code, honor, loyalty. We use these as the backbone of a life defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I'd rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. Obviously, there's a whole context surrounding that and I've edited a little bit here and there, but I like the general sentiment of that, of this kind of anti-idealism lefty 
condemnation slash condescension towards the military. That's kind of a separate point, but just, to, you know, bringing it back to the idea of we do live in a world with walls. You might not like that. And, you know, a true hippie utopian uh, would want them eradicated, but I really don't think you want to live in that world. Joe Biden went on to say that, you know, asked about, um, do you understand the fear or the anxieties that uh, black people have? And he said, yeah, I do. You know, like, um, as a white man with a white daughter, I never had to tell her to put your hands on the wheel at 10 and 2 and don't, don't reach for the glove box and, you know, say yes, sir, no, sir. I, that doesn't sound like, a bad idea to me. Like, mate, that should be widely taught, not just the black kids or, you know, children. That's a good rule of thumb. If the police pull you over in America, keep your hands a 10 or 2 on the wheel, abide, obey what the cops tell you to do. If it's out of order or even illegal, take it up with a lawyer after the fact. This isn't patronize, you know, do what we tell you to do. The fact is that in America, cops have guns. Just listen to what they say. Anyway, yeah, so Biden said that, you know, and then he claimed that there is institutional racism in America. Do not come on stage and claim that you believe in a United States of America. You know, not blue states, not red states. I believe in a United States of America. And then divide people along racial lines. It's disgusting. Incidentally, I recently... It went viral, this clip of... I'm going to get her name wrong. Kemi or Kimi Badenoch, um, an MP, speaking in the House of uh, Commons or Lords, whatever. Uh, she was talking about critical race theory. And it's a brilliant clip. I recommend that you YouTube it. It's just great. Uh, I've got one of her quotes singled out here. So that she's talking about the, the teaching of critical race theory in schools. And she says, what we are against is the teaching of contested political ideas as if they are accepted facts. We don't do this with communism. We don't do this with socialism. We don't do it with capitalism. We don't want to see teachers teaching their students about white privilege and inherited racial guilt. It's just a great clip. She talks about America's history being its own that we've imported as a narrative. I mean, that is true of a lot of things, Halloween especially. I Growing up, Halloween... It never felt like that big a deal, I suppose I wouldn't really know, but for adults, like it was understood to be a children's thing. You dressed up as something spooky and you went trick or treating. And, it, and you know, horror creepiness was very much the salient dimensions of the Halloween experience. It wasn't just dressing up as anything. You know, we'd taken that from America and uh, we've also taken their narrative of race relations, I think. Uh, you know, Britain has its own black history and she says, you know, the, the, just adopting this American thing, it kind of ignores the reality of black British history that most people who came here came here because they wanted to. And she talks about uh, in Nigeria, there's a statue of a woman in a, in a square there who was a slave trader, but also fought colonialism and, and all these things. And it's understood in Nigeria that she's a very uh, complicated figure as most historical figures are. And, you know, she says that we have... We should we should learn a lesson or two from Nigeria. I definitely agree with that, about pulling down statues. Right, so yeah, back to Trump. 
again, I'll say it again, Trump is Trump. That's just a problem in and of itself. Uh, he said, with the exception, and then qualified it with the possible exception of Abraham Lincoln, that he'd been the best president for African-Americans. <laughs> I don't think you... Um, I think you can say without qualification that Abraham Lincoln was the best president for black people. I don't think that's controversial. <laughs> I think that's... I think that's pretty much been decided, you know? And probably will be the best president uh, for black people forever. Uh, my favorite quote of the whole thing was they were talking about environmentalism and energy and uh, wind energy. And Trump said, I know about, I know more about wind than you do. And uh, I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> I think ultimately, right, it comes down to what kind of truth bubble you live in. It's been, well, in my news lately uh, about Hunter Biden and Ukrainian influence, this whole laptop story that, you know, go and look it up. Uh, I'm not going to break it down now, but the fact is if you follow BuzzFeed or The Guardian or most celebrities slash news folk, you might not have even heard of it. Uh, there was a story, New York, the New York Post broke the story and they tweeted about it and that was taken down from Twitter, which is terrifying you know, just kind of naked political bias. I was listening to a podcast with Sam Harris and a lady named Nina Schick, and they were talking about Russian interference in elections across the West. And, you know, in 2015, the Russians were displacing people from Syria by making their lives, you know, terrible. And then when they were flooding to the West, kind of manipulating the information in Europe, and then they were talking about deep fakes and how that's going to become more prevalent and, you know, with, with the the advent of uh, artificial intelligence technology being uh, open source and all these different things. And it does just depress the fuck out of you. I mean, you can't trust anything really anymore. And I say that without hyperbole and with full conviction. There's so little you can trust. But I, one thing that I've fallen out with some people over uh, politics, I suppose. But then I, I saw a film called The Social Dilemma, which we'll actually talk about as a group. But after seeing that, uh, you know, one, one of the claims that the, the, the subjects of the documentary make is that, you know, you're, you're hearing about a particular news event and this other person hasn't. And you're thinking, well, how have they not heard of it? It's everywhere. You know, they must have seen it. And the reality is they probably haven't because their bubble is catered to their, you know, it's designed to keep them locked in this echo chamber. And I guess everyone talks about the echo chamber all the time and the bubble and, but social media companies have a vested interest in keeping you in those bubbles. It's not in the business of offering nuance. Uh, yeah, the whole thing is just entirely bleak, <laughs> incredibly dispiriting. Um, but yeah, so I've fallen out with a few friends about it and now I just kind of think, you know, they just, they don't have the same information. I'm not saying my information is the correct information or superior. I try to cultivate a balanced view of the world, but you can't even trust your sources anymore. So tread lightly, I guess. I'm Staying somewhat within the realm of politics, there was recently a reunion of the West Wing cast uh, filmed and put on HBO Max. It was a reading of, a, of an existing episode called Hartsfield's Landing, staged. Uh, 
it's okay. I mean, they had the actress who played Ainsley Hayes reading the scene description, which is a crime. Ainsley Hayes is one of the best things about the West Wing. I'm a big fan of hers. And so to be underused in such a uh, repulsive way. I mean, she's not in the episode, but I guess it's nice they invited her back. But still, it's just a waste. Ainsley Hayes. They had Sterling K. Brown playing Leo McGarry. And if you're not at all, if you're not familiar with the West Wing, you, there's no point in listening to this at all. But there's a character in the West Wing called Leo McGarry, who's the president's chief of staff, played by an actor called John Spencer, who at the time, I guess, was in his late 50s, at least 60s, you know. Um, and he and the president were of a similar age, lifelong friends. And that was the, you know, the nature of that relationship. And, you know, Sterling K. Brown is is a good actor. He's a black actor. Leo is, uh, Leo McGarry is, unsurprisingly, of Irish descent. Um, you know, a kind of Boston American kind of guy. I don't have a problem with it in and of itself. I mean, they picked an episode where Leo isn't particularly, you know, he's not in it a lot. But I, I guess, what I should clarify, the actor who played Leo, John Spencer, passed away uh, before the final episode of the West Wing. Uh, so they would have had to recast him. I don't know. It's Again, it goes back to the James Bond thing of, did you cast the best actor or did you cast... It just looks... It looks woke now to... You have one role to fill and you cast the black actor. Again, he's a great actor. But th- this is the terrible shame about all of this is that it, it just colours, funnily enough, your impression of things. Uh, but I know the only reason that is that the point is that in the West Wing, you know, they're old white guys and they're friends. And if they'd cast an older black actor, that would have worked better. Sterling K. Brown is what, like in his late 30s, early 40s, something like that. I just don't think it works. On the whole, it's not depressing looking at Dulé Hill or uh, Janelle Maloney, Rob Lowe or Richard Schiff. They've aged fairly well. I mean, Dulé Hill was quite young when they started, so... Um, he's fine. Janelle Maloney weirdly just hasn't aged. Rob Lowe is Rob Lowe and Richard Schiff was bald basically with, you know, uh, well, that Toby look (laughs) when it started, uh, the Jewish curls. And he's got that, he's just slightly greyer. The rest of them, Martin Sheen, Alison Janney, Bradley Whitford, oh man, it gets you down. Time. Uh, So the novel thing about the reunion is that the acts were broken up by these interjections from the cast members. The whole thing was it was a drive-to-vote sort of project. And they had the actors between segments telling you or telling different communities why they should go and vote. Young people, black people, that sort of thing. Aaron Sorkin clearly scripted those interjections. And it's terrible. It reminds me of the Isaac and Ishmael episode of The West Wing, which if you're not at all familiar with it, before the premiere of the third season, uh, 9-11 happened. And so in like record time, they produced this episode that would try to address some of the issues around terrorism and Islam and that sort of thing. And it's incredibly preachy and it's considered the worst thing The West Wing ever did, basically. Um, Well, while Aaron Sorkin was there anyway. And... At the start of that episode, Isaac and Ishmael, the actors are talking to camera and it just comes, it's very didactic and very irritating. When he's writing drama and scripts, it's perfect. But 
when you're trying to talk to me, but you're scripted by Aaron Sorkin, it, it, it just doesn't sit very well. But the whole thing was quite disingenuous, really. The, the, it was a lot of just go and vote. It doesn't matter who you vote for, just go and vote. That, that's fine. That's a perfectly noble message. I would just prefer it if they were honest about who they wanted me to vote for, you know, or Americans to vote for. Uh, it's clearly, clearly, clearly Democrat, you know. Uh, they had Dulé Hill and Sterling K. Brown talks, talk about uh, if you think a black man has a right to breathe, uh, if you see bigotry and brutality on our streets. But they're not talking about Black Lives Matter, are they? You know? Uh, the actress who plays Nancy McNally, uh, her fi- this is going to sound terrible at homonym, but her facial features have all kind of retreated inwards and clustered like there's something scary outside her face and they're, you know, they're huddling together. Uh, sorry, actress who plays Nancy McNally, though, I'm having a go at your looks there, but you, you, you have started to look very strange. Like a balloon that's expanded. You drew a face on the balloon and expanded it, but instead of moving with the balloon, it just stayed at the center. Uh, the final nail in the coffin for me was that they got in Bill Clinton to tell you why you should go and vote. Like, okay, do you need a more naked declaration? Naked declaration, incidentally, that was not a reference to his, um, the various allegations of sexual assault against him. But, hey-ho. I watch a lot. That should be, that should have become clear um, over the course of us doing the podcast. I watch a lot and I obviously naturally do not talk about 95, 96, maybe even 97% of it. But now that I'm doing this on my own, I thought I might as well plug some of the things that I've been watching lately. It's not just new stuff. You know, I do have a back catalogue. Uh, with television, I'm actually caught up on the, uh, on the on the contemporary front. I've watched everything that's still going, <laughs> basically, that people consider good or that some people consider good. Uh, you could say that about anything, couldn't you? You know what I'm saying. Yes, but so I, I'm at a place now where I can actually go back and finish the back catalogue of television. And I've been focusing on British comedy, obscure British comedy. Uh, three shows in particular I want to just mention quickly. Marion and Jeff is the first. Rob Brydon uh, playing a man named Keith Barrett. And the whole show is he has a camera in his car and then you know a taxi and then a chauffeur um i think he's a taxi driver yeah i think so uh definitely a chauffeur and him just monologuing about what he's been up to and life and his the 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 whole context of of it is that he was married to this woman called marion uh, and she had an affair with her co-worker jeff and he no longer sees his kids and he's just kind of a pathetic mess really um it's really good though I mean it's I've always had not a low opinion of Rob Brydon I've just he's been in a cer- at a certain place for me you know host of what I lie to you fairly decent actor but no one that stands out really and a couple of shows I've seen recently have dispelled me of that notion it's given me a lot more respect for him he wrote Marion and Jeff with I think Hugo Blick they wrote it together and it's just really well put together and heartbreaking. It's in that school of British comedy that's that makes you want to kill yourself, you know? I also saw a show called Human Remains, which Rob Brydon also wrote and starred in with Julia Davis. Every episode, uh, they play a different couple that are kind of scraping the bottom of, the, of society's barrel in a different way. These kind of odious people 
it only ran for one series that i mean that's well written well put together you know he gets to display his range of accents uh it, it was it was good it, it, it didn't break the mold for me and it's actually that's sort of bleak without uh redemption really because uh, you know the, the narrative doesn't really go anywhere past the episode it's rare that you find some happy conclusion in it uh, but it was well put together but yeah so Marion and Jeff and then this other show called Roger and Val just got in uh, written by I'm assuming sisters maybe mother and a daughter but sister seems more likely uh, starring Dawn French and Alfred Molina they are the only two actors in it playing a married couple who every episode, you know, they, they get in from work and it plays out in real time, just the conversation they have when they get in. And again, very, very well put together, slipped under the radar. I don't think many people have seen it. And I don't want to spoil it too much, but again, it's 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 in that school of dour British comedy. So, you know, there's something uh, dark or tragic beneath it. In this case, it's that they're uh, 18 years ago, uh, they had a baby and the baby passed away. And so they've kind of been dealing with the grief ever since then, really. But they they managed to stay together. And I won't spoil it by giving away precisely the plot machinations. I mean, these shows are like, that show's about 10 years old and Marion and Jeff is now about 20 years old. But still, I don't think many people have seen it. So I don't think it's it's fair to say that it's uh, it should be public domain yet. So yeah, I won't spoil the, the specificities of the ending, but both have happy endings that you really do not see coming given how much it puts you through. Uh, and that was nice. That was, <laughs> you know, just, that was just a nice experience for me. And yes, I, I would recommend them on that level, really, that they, they are very well put together, well-written, well-performed. And they do put you through, through the ringer a little bit, but there is redemption at the end of it. If only life was like that, huh? Finally, I mean, we decided to do this. I, yeah, we, we decided to do this like two days ago, yesterday, maybe at the time of recording. Uh, So everything that I've talked about hasn't been thoroughly planned, but just before sitting down, I decided I was going to talk about this. So apologies for any, um, for more going no in us on Jordan and Eddie's fun divided they talked about gaming and you know given the opportunity of me not being there they really talked about it and you know they there's nothing to uh nothing was said that was inaccurate uh this is sounding serious now like I'm rebutting no Jordan at one point said that I think my problem with gaming is that I think the E3 dweebs, uh, that they represent all gamers. And as I said to him, that's not enough of a... That's not wrong enough that I have a problem with it. <laughs> like, there's a kernel of truth in there. I obviously don't believe that. But I thought I would generally talk about my view on gaming, just so you don't think I'm completely uh, some fuddy-duddy. I mean, I do play games, you know? Uh, and I played a lot as a child and a teenager. Uh, I'm fairly good at games, the games I play. <laughs> uh, yeah, but th- my general relationship with gaming is, I think it comes from a place of self-judgment, right? Now, 
I'm an aspiring writer and I've wanted to be a writer since I was five years old. So any moment that I am not writing, I am judging myself for not writing. And so there are kind of levels of content consumption with varying degrees of guilt attached to them. So because I want to write for film and television, I can tell myself that if I watch something new, as it new in, in the sense that I, have, I haven't seen it before, it's that I'm kind of expanding my knowledge, you know, and picking up uh, lessons from different shows. And that obviously isn't true a lot of the time, but it's a way of justifying it to myself. Now, in terms of consumption, I would put books at the top of that list. They are the most noble of the media. I don't read nearly enough. And, you know, if I'm not writing, I'm judging myself. But if I'm not reading instead, I'm judging myself for that. And so it kind of goes down the ladder, a cascading uh, torrent of shame. The point is that I put gaming at the bottom of that list. I see gaming as just frittering away your time. I I do have a fairly a fairly low opinion of it. There's hypocrisy in that somewhere because, like I say, I do occasionally game. But I, I don't like that games are considered art in the same way that film and television is. There are obviously wonderfully crafted games and games that transcend their gaminess, you know, like like games that are essentially just experiential, uh, like, um, oh, I'm gonna, obviously I'm fucking blanking on the name of it now. It's that game where you, uh, Journey, Journey's the game, uh, which is basically just a, a sensory experience, an emotional experience. And then there are games like Ali Noir, which while there are obviously gameplay elements, you're just watching a film on some level. But yeah, so that that's my thing with gaming is gaming is a thing that you should do if you you have a job, you have a, a a a job with which you are happy and a comfortable life and you find yourself with a rare day off. Your friends are busy and your girlfriend is busy or boyfriend and you have nothing you have to do. You have 2 hours free. That is the time to game. I know that sounds incredibly narrow and limiting and judgmental but I'm acknowledging it so it's it's acceptable fuck you uh no I I just I don't view it as a high high thing to be doing in that way uh, you know uh it's not a I can't think of a word other than noble it's not a worthy undertaking you are just wanking away your time as far as I'm concerned so that <laughs> that I, I tried to be balanced I ended on that that's my that's my opinion of gaming. Uh, yeah, thanks again. R- really apologies for the proliferation of pauses, ums and ahs that might be edited out, but might not. Uh, yeah, thanks. Join us again when it will be the three of us for Halloween. Spooky. Ooh, bye. Bye.